Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. Okay, this is Krista Wells, and you're listening to the True Tunes Podcast. You want me to say it again? (laughs) (laughs) This is Krista Wells, and you're listening to the True Tunes Podcast. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and welcome to the True Tunes Podcast. One of the most important, even life-saving aspects of art and imagination, in my opinion, is the opportunity it provides us to reframe the most difficult, frightening, confusing, and even painful experiences of this life into glimpses of grace, echoes of truth, and reflections of beauty, broken though they may be. A fancy word for this miracle is redemption. Of course, for me, it's essential. Our guest this episode is Krista Wells, a songwriter and singer with a particular gift for this kind of writing. She's employed it many times as a writer for other artists, but recently experienced a season of deep personal challenge and struggle. She dove into that darkness and found beauty in the deep end. The resulting album, Velveteen, is a fantastic piece of work you've been hearing on the weekly Spotify mixtapes quite a bit. When people ask me what I hope the True Tunes podcast accomplishes, I usually answer very quickly that this conversation needs to be both inspirational and educational. Inspiration and education for artists and fans. And when the idea for this show was first coming together, one of the independent artists I knew I wanted to talk to right out of the gate was Krista. Her songs have been cut by Natalie Grant, Plum, and Ellie Holcomb, among others, but her own compelling musical voice almost never came to be. We'll hear about her unlikely journey, crafting a music career later in life, and how she makes it all work, even managing to support a family as an independent artist in this wide-ranging conversation recorded at my own dining room table, Creeks and All. Yes, it's hard to believe when you're well aware that you're not what you mean. I first came to know Krista Wells' music when I was working at Capital CMG Publishing, and she was working on an alternative worship project with one of our writers. Well, truth be told, we later found out that she and her sister came to True Tunes in Wheaton when they were teens, so we probably met back then, but I'm not counting that. When I heard her songs a few years ago, I was floored by both the honesty and the tone. It's not that she was doing anything remarkably different or novel, she just did her brand of alternative pop music really, really well. She writes songs for other artists, she releases her own excellent albums, she tours, and she supports her family as a newly single mom, all as an independent artist. 
I knew she was one of the first people I wanted to talk to for this podcast and was thrilled when she agreed to come for a visit. First, uh, can you just kind of, you mentioned the other day when we were talking that you were, you called yourself sort of a late bloomer. Mm. Um, kind of give me the rundown of what got you into, what's your creative story? When did you start doing music of your own and what was that path like? <laughs> well, whenever I'm asked when I started making music of my own or doing my own music, I instantly go way back to kindergarten, okay? Because I spent my whole childhood making music for myself. Um, but I didn't start sharing it publicly really, really until my mid thirties. I thought I wanted to do that all of my growing years. I loved Amy Grant and would, you know, spent half my childhood on my belly reading all the lyrics and liner notes. Um, but when I actually got old enough to do the things I had been saying I wanted to do, I found out I didn't like being on stage. I actually didn't, I really felt uncomfortable. Um, and I, I was petrified <laughs> and, um, I felt like I had a debilitating level of performance anxiety. And so it was okay if I was in a group, I was in a band in college. I also sang backup for another artist and that felt fine, but I couldn't seem to share my own work with any kind of comfort. And so I decided to focus on songwriting in my early twenties at about age 23, 24, I made a conscious decision that that is the path that I would take. And really was very happy doing that. I didn't even live in Nashville, so I was coming in and out of town and I didn't have too much pressure on me because I was just sing signing single song contracts. So I didn't have any quota. So I would hand my publisher, you know, a few songs here and there that I wrote in very slim margins because I already had kids and started coming out and co-writing with people, which was very uncomfortable for me for a long time after having been writing as a solo writer for so many years. So the songwriting opened the doors and it was a few years into that journey, maybe nine years or so of thinking of myself strictly as a songwriter, that I became dissatisfied because the music industry and or the the niche that I had contacts in was the Christian music industry, which was moving increasingly towards worship music. I don't write that. So my singer songwriter slash pop feel, um, I would, I was writing all these songs. I had just won a major award in the industry. And I don't think I had a cut after that for three years. It was, it was just kind of crazy, you know, crickets. And so what was the award for? Um, Songwriter of the Year, for, uh, the Doves for Held, which I wrote for Natalie Grant. And um, I don't, I, I may have had one or two songs placed in the three years after that. And so I was discouraged. Um, I've ne I never craved any notoriety, but I did crave opportunity. I just wanted to be able to keep doing this work and hoped to be respected amongst my peers. Really, that's what I wanted. And um, so in 2009, my friend Nicole Witt and I were both in similar situations about the same age, both writing for other artists and kind of discouraged and feeling like we have this growing body of work just sitting there, not ever being heard. And I realized if I do not step up and sing these songs, nobody's gonna sing them. 99% of what I write is never ever going to be heard with somebody else singing it because I just didn't have a, an avenue mm -hmm. to place them. So I decided to face my 
fear and start getting out there. And I had Nicole with me, which kind of gave me some courage and strength. And we just started from the ground up way past our quote prime, you know, way past when in the industry, way, way, way past the prime. Brothers and sisters, we're saints and sinners. Why do we live like enemies? Let's leave our anger, forgive our debtors, live like a people set free. Uh, you're saying that you were in your 30s, you weren't 20 years old. Yes. Uh, you and, and uh, Nicole both. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that you were both definitely in your prime yes as both singers and as songwriters yeah. i remember watching the two of you do some you know showcasey kind mm -hmm. of thing in a restaurant i can't in franklin remember. is that what it was i could for remember. more than ruby's project yeah Gosh, you remember better than others. <laughs> I, you see so many of these things oh, over yeah. the years but i just remember um the two of you and it's an industry thing that mm -hmm. we're all at because i was at capital at the time mm -hmm. and we were working with nicole and i remember going almost honestly out of obligation sure. and then you guys <laughs> performed and i'm like what in the world <laughs> like these two are amazing what mm. how is this not and and that's exactly right maybe not in your prime by some sort of really nonsensical definition but the level of professionalism and soulfulness and the way I mean everything about it mm. was prime mm. so I didn't want you to let, I don't want right. to just slide by on that yeah. one because you definitely both of you were in a gear mm -hmm. so that was early in your in your arc yeah. as an artist I think that was 2012 maybe okay. when we released the more than rubies project together so I had been doing it for three years and I still was terrified I was terrified playing for that little thing that night um, and I didn't live in Nashville, so I ever when I didn't live in Nashville, it was especially hard for me to play out here because I felt like a poser. Even in co-writes out here, I felt like, well, I'm not, I'm not one of you guys. Like I'm just kind of a half timer from North Carolina. You think singers and dreamers invent escape from the real? Oh, but they have eyes to see what must be. There is this line that the industry, especially the old, you know, the big record labels from the past, you know, had a very young line drawn, you know. But with access as independent artists to distribution and to putting our stuff out there, first of all, nobody even has to see your face. If you're making awesome music, like you get to be judged on the quality of your music first, if you get it, you know, make it accessible to people and they hear it. So. The pressure is on us to keep making music that people want to hear that's relevant and, and fresh and as good as... You know, I just have to be, you know, Nicole said a few years ago, she said, she's like, yeah, I'm 36. If I, I want to do this, I just have to be better than the 21-year-olds, so I will. And a 36-year-old <laughs> is going to have a lot more stuff to say. Oh, yeah. And especially with all the things I had to grow through... Um, as far as all my anxiety and my inferiority complex and all of that, I didn't have it in me in my 20s. So I did sometimes perform in my 20s and it wasn't good. You know, it was, I just wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. So I say I'm a late, late bloomer. I mean, even as a teenager, physically, I, I didn't look my age for, you know, till the ends of my 
15 years. Um, and then I just feel like musically, um, it's, it took me a long time to step into my music, my musical voice. And even now, I feel like what, with what I've, uh, my personal journey and my divorce and things like that in the last few years, I still feel like, oh, I'm just beginning to wake up to my own life and my own presence and my own voice. And so I have always felt, but I haven't, I don't say it in a complaining way. In a way, I feel like I don't mind being a late bloomer because I'm, you know, in my 40s, but I kind of feel like I've got this energy of a 30 year old. Like I'm just discovering how to do this living thing. And Come as you are, as you were, as I was you to be as a friend as a friend as an old enemy so tell me a little bit about the velveteen project and now it's been out for a little bit mm -hmm. you've been living with the songs and you've done some different kind mm -hmm. of live versions of it um even a remix that's a lot of fun yeah. um but talk about how those songs came together and sort of the personality of this project and and how that fits into your story. Uh, I wrote the songs over a period of a couple of years. The last song that I wrote was the title track, Velveteen, and I wrote that right as we went in to record. In fact, finished it in the studio with Ben Shive, my producer. So all the other songs were written in this period of time where my marriage was in the process of falling apart. So it wasn't, they weren't written in retrospect. Um, this is not a divorce album. <laughs> it just happens that I wrote them during that season. So there's a song called Holy Ground that's really written about being an art uh, and about the voice of artists um, in the world and how to see the world not in terms of this divided secular versus sacred, but seeing all of it as holy and sacred. That has nothing to do with my uh, marriage, but it was written during that time. And same with Down Down Low, which was more written about the political season, 2016. But um, but the other uh, several of the other songs are dealing with my personal crisis and just my perspective during that time and um, relationship with my ex-husband. And now, so the, it's been an interesting thing. You know, now we've just passed the one-year mark since the release. At the time of release, I was petrified. I just was regretting having put money into these songs and time because I thought I can't go perform these why did I write these and take these into the studio these are way too personal and whatever but it does seem like you know from the time you write a song and then you go into the studio and then you wait for it to be mixed and mastered you have time <laughs> you have time to live with them and figure it out sometimes you gotta go dark Sometimes you gotta be quiet Sometimes you gotta get far From the voices that stir up violence Everybody wants to talk Nobody wants to listen Everybody wants to talk Nobody wants to listen You gotta get, get, get down, down low You gotta turn, turn, turn it Down, down low You gotta take it, take it, take it Down, down low You gotta get down but that's that's also different like in the old model you had to do a record and then you had to go tour it because that was the only way to promote right. it but you've certainly been in a lot of ways it seems like you've kind of taken to uh, a lot of different social media types of mm -hmm. things to take the stories and to take your life and to make the tour 
uh, a very different kind of way to, to regularly be in contact with your I community. That. I love that you just said that because I haven't actually thought of that consciously. I've just thought, I did a poor job of touring. <laughs> so that's a positive spin. Um, I just didn't really have it in me to book a lot of tours. As an independent artist without a, an, a, rest, you know, a team booking things for me, it is, that is by far the most exhausting part of the job is to just do the logistics of planning shows. And so I really only put together a small string of weekends where I went out and traveled and played. And I, I would like to play the songs more, but like I said, just given that I really was in real time going through divorce and I'm a um, single parent to all these kids, I didn't have it in me. And I play on the road for my friend Ellie, so that was already taking me away from home. So I have tried to be creative and find as many ways as possible to engage with listeners online. So now a, a year or so uh, of listening to it, when you go back and listen, uh -huh. do you ever go back and just listen to the album? Very rarely, but um, usually only if somebody asks to hear it, like some, you know, I don't know, in some way, like I'm booking something or I make a new friend or somebody wants to hear it and I'm sending it to them, I might re-listen to like try to hear it through there, mm -hmm. <laughs> like with fresh ears and go, oh, what are they about to hear? Because I haven't really listened to this in a right. long time. I wasn't awake to notice the rain I wasn't awake until I saw you kneeling in the mud I added the cost, I gathered the rope I sounded the bell, but oh, oh The damage had already been done So talk about the remix. Um, For Butterfly. How, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to... I, I I love remixes. I love um, music that is... I think people would be surprised at my playlist a lot of the time. The music I listen to and dance to is not, you know, sweet and pretty piano music, which is what I tend to write. So I loved the idea of collaborating with people who could take these songs and put a fresh interpretation on them. So I have sent out a few and I've just gotten one no, I've gotten two back. I've got Holy Ground, which I released last year. Um, Salt, of, Salt of the Sound is a European duo who remixed Holy Ground into an even more contemplative atmospheric track. And then recently, my friend Julie Malucci Adnorolov, I almost always say her last name wrong, but she remixed Butterfly, and I just love it. Mm -hmm. It's It's really fun and fresh and and she's very young and I love that too I love working with people who are uh, you know in a different generation than how I did am. you connect with her uh, she plays guitar for Ellie Holcomb and, and oh. I play piano for Ellie so we've just been on the road together a few times oh. and she's delightful and she's an old soul she's 25 but you know you you can talk with her about anything Oh. 
What are some of the things that you are finding give you inspiration? How do you kind of keep filling your tank creatively so mm -hmm. that when you're writing songs, you've got these images and these ideas that come out? Uh, it feels to me like in Nashville, I worked in publishing for so long, people go in a room and write and co-write and they come out, they might do that three, four or five times a week. It's pretty easy for a lot of cliches to start just bouncing around. And um, But when you're when I'm listening to your songs, I'm not hearing that, that kind of stuff. I'm hearing things that are uh, literary references or very personal things, but said in very universal ways. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we want to talk about here are uh, ways that songwriters can and artists can expand their vocabulary musically and lyrically to to really be coming up with the next new great idea. What are some yeah. of the things that you do for that? Um, I don't overwrite for one thing. I don't schedule more than two writing days a week, really. So I write less than a lot of people around here. Um, I read a a good bit. Uh, every morning I have to read a bit and uh, usually it's um, some kind of spiritually nurturing nonfiction in the morning but usually it's somebody who I really respect in a literary way like Frederick Buechner um, and a lot of poetry and um, the last year the last couple years I've read a lot of poetry by Mary Oliver and this old Persian guy from the 13th century named Hafiz. And just reading other people's work, um, your brain, I think, just naturally takes in the cadences that are possible and the, the way people string words together. Um, at least for me, I feel like I naturally absorb, and I think it's true with what you're listening to musically as well that you take things in and that does shape the what comes out. If you're listening to a lot of one particular artist, you're probably gonna write a little bit in that vein for a while. So I try to read and I also try to practice poetry writing in the last year, especially, which helps me lyrically. Um, and I listen to all kinds of music. I listen to playlists that other people have curated, including my own kids. And even knowing that a lot of it is from my perspective as a writer it's crappy you know it's like not but there might be some element some elements um, especially mel melody writing which is not my first thing my greatest strength I feel like listening to all these different kinds of music especially new and current and fresh music helps me stay a little more attuned to um, the new ways of melody right because it is different generation to generation you know um, so and then the other thing I think I started to say reading and listening are the biggest things, but uh, also just great conversation. I try to surround myself with people who are smarter than me and, and, you know, people who just have a different way of saying things. And I feel like I'm always lucky enough to be in the company of great thinkers and feelers who are expressive. And I just am always on the edge of my seat and doing a lot more mental recording than people are aware of. You know, I'm going, oh, that stays with me. And... A number of my songs were inspired by somebody else's words or music or mm -hmm. so those are the things that directly I'm aware of impact my writing but I also just try to take care of myself by being in nature a lot and giving myself lots of listening to my heart time listening to God time this thing is gonna try to break you but it doesn't have to you're showing us how 
not gonna break you. So as an independent artist, you have no publishing deal, you have no record deal. I have you know, no deals. No deals. <laughs> um, so right now, if you're talking to artists who are trying to make a way, thinking about maybe they're college students or maybe they're high school students and they're, they really feel like they want to do music mm -hmm. as a career, mm -hmm. um, what does it look like? How Can you actually make money as an artist without another job? Like, are you able to make income mm -hmm. from Spotify, for instance, right now? Is I it, do. Is it, I do. I'm, it's not the biggest chunk of my, it's definitely not anywhere close to the biggest chunk of my income, though. So for me, it's all about diversifying um, and about employing every means possible to monetize what I've already created, you know, any work that's already been created, what have I not yet done with that? How can I, and there's still plenty I have not done because of time limitations mainly, but, um, and then also my existing skill set, what have I not done with that skill set that I, you know, and teaching is part of that. So I didn't teach, I've played piano since I was a kid, but I didn't teach it until last year, two years ago when I became a single person and needed a little bit more and I was like, well, I haven't used that yet. And anytime you can do something using your specialty, you're going to make way more money than if you do something that more people are capable of doing, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you get a job at the grocery store, that's great. It's it might be steady, but you can't make as much per hour as if you use your skill set. So, for young people, I think people I know I have a high school I know a girl in high school who teaches piano on Sunday afternoons to a number of uh, neighborhood kids. And because of that, because she's making 20 some bucks for 30 minutes, she doesn't have to go work at Kroger, you know, and she wastes, makes way more money for less hours. Um, there's all kinds of ways, it, you know, my son is skilled in, or growing his skills in recording. And when Je and Jess Ray, a few years ago, she's a singer songwriter, but she was trying to, um, improve her skills as a producer and so it was a help to her and a help to me to say hey could you do some demos for me once a month that i'll share with my patrons and she didn't charge as much nearly as much as a experienced producer here with cred would but um, she was able to charge way more than she would doing some other job right so streaming is a small part of my income i still make income from my songwriting days uh, royalties from that that's helpful and then patreon which we've talked about has been hugely helpful come after me come after me come after me i want to be i want to be i want to be worth the grand pursuit wanted by you so if i go i need to know your love will come after me So the key is to diversify and to have lots of small streams as opposed to counting on one thing. Yes. So even though Spotify is not going to drive a lot of revenue, you are seeing some from it. Yes. I'm, how does I that so. functionally come? Do you get yeah. a check from Spotify? Or are you getting it from SoundExchange? Or how do you get that money? I get very little from SoundExchange, and I think I've maybe set it up wrong. I need to look into that. Um, mainly, I get it through my the distributors I've worked with, which now is DistroKid for the most part. But I've worked with Reverb Nation and an older Tim one Moore, named Nimbit I worked with for a little while. So all the three of those 
right. still pay me monthly. And that's nice. It's, you know, it's grocery money or whatever. Right. Do you look at Spotify as marketing your music then? And then yeah. it's marketing that pays you a little bit, but it's really... Right. It's, it's much more marketing and just, uh, yeah, it's a... a way to be able to share easily because you can share those links mm-hmm. you know and that's just it's just the reality it's where people go to listen now that and youtube you know it's where people discover it's not ideal in that i think playlists are great but also people listen and consume without caring who's who they're listening to a lot of the time so that's the reality we're dealing with is people don't have as much attachment to the artist as i think we did growing up you know, where you would yeah. listen to the whole album and you'd find out everything about them and you show up for their shows. It happens now, but there are tons of people, like you can see people with huge numbers of plays on Spotify, but people don't show up for their shows, right? It's it's an imbalance. And then you have people who sell out their shows, but maybe don't have a ton of spot. It depends on the dem- demographic. I know bands who have a slightly older demographic, very few Spotify follows and plays, low on Instagram, but people buy their merch at their shows, sell out their shows. It's true that Spotify doesn't pay much, Mm -hmm. but radio pays nothing, Mm. you know, for artists. It pays something for songwriters, but nothing. And you can't get on the radio unless you're a hit. You have to be smart and and, and try to get, you know, you have to be creative too. So if I were out touring, I would be really smart about my merch because you can make a lot of money on creative merch ideas beside, you know, even without CDs. Right. Even without vinyl, even if you're not selling a ton of vinyl, you know, it's t-shirts and hats and right. all of that stuff, so. A lot of work to be done here Before the sun goes down Keep turning these rocks over and over Till we clear them out Who knows how long The day will be It took a year to be empty What are your plans musically for the on the horizon? You got another record coming? Um, I have an accumulation of songs that I would love to choose at least a few of to release as singles in the next few months. And then I would also I'm also toying with the idea of a live acoustic album, just really stripped down because um, I think people, especially if you're a songwriter like I am, that's uh, lyrically substantive. I think. Uh, people do not mind one bit just hearing a guitar, right. piano, vocal, and so I would love to do that. I think it, it would be something. It's, not, it's something I've not done before, and that's how I actually perform the songs. Right. So it would be nice to have a product that sounds more like my live performance. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be back shortly. We're back with the True Tunes podcast. Bottom of a midnight shell Underneath It's hard to tell Tears from water Black from blind I'm here now baby But I'm gone inside Ah, 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 ah,
Sam Phillips' latest album, World on Sticks, is stunning even by her lofty standards. It's lean and mean, smart and thrifty, quirky enough to be fascinating and yet never weird for weirdness sake. Her sense for sophisticated pop melodies would make Lennon and McCartney proud, and her pen need never feel insecure around the likes of Elvis Costello, Andy Partridge, or Mark Hurd when it comes to turning a clever phrase or wrapping a profound concept in a deceptively simple hook. Simply put, Sam Phillips is one of the most consistently impressive alternative pop songwriters and artists out there today, and on World on Sticks, an album she not only composed and performs but produced as well, it is clear that her artistry just continues to grow. However, there is a subtle shift in the songs on this album, where Phillips has most often written from a first-person, often character-driven perspective. World on Sticks represents a much more global, universal, even prophetic perspective as she confronts epistemological challenges to our very survival. How can we possibly confront environmental, political, or other existential threats if the very idea of knowledge, facts, information, and communication are suspect? Someone keeps giving out the wrong numbers We're not supposed to know what's true Champagne promises Only red, only blue When they break down the doors to easy street Will they leave anything for you? How much is enough? Drums and percussion are handled by the amazing Jay Belleros, who has been a core member of Joe Henry's band for many years and has lent his talents to projects by Over the Rhine, Robert Plant, and Alison Krauss, and Amy Mann, among many others. The brilliantly executed strings, and I'm talking sharp, focused, punchy strings, with definition and purpose, are performed by the Section Quartet, who have played with Foo Fighters, Nick Cave, A Perfect Circle, Dr. Dre, Snow Patrol, Aerosmith, and, well, you get the picture. The songs here are ambient without being aimless, at once melodic and adventurous, out of the box and yet somehow traditional, the perfect balance of hook, tone, lyric, and soul. Phillips has been great for a long time, but on track after track here, she simply soars. This is brilliant stuff. I want to be you on the screen, on the street, on the stage I want to be you in your clothes, with your friends in a camera cage I'm tired of myself, I'm tired of myself, I want to be you As perfectly as Phillips captures the bleak reality facing the human community right now, she manages to end in a soberly hopeful place with candles and stars, noting that when things get this dark, a trickle of light may be just enough to help us find our way through to love. If only with candles and stars Who can light from dreams like us We will still find our way through 
World on Sticks came out late last year and I just can't wander far from it. I keep firing it up and noticing new things about it. Side B of the jukebox this time around, we are going back to 1979 and the second album by gospel rock pioneers DeGarmo and Key, Straight On. This was the album that introduced me to the concept of imaginative top drawer rock and roll from a gospel perspective, and yes, I was about nine years old when my grandmother gave me this tape as a gift. So I admit that there is a whole lot of extra, positive baggage surrounding this project for me. But I'm a professional now. And as a fully grown-up student of both rock history and Jesus music, I can honestly say that Straight On is one of the best and most tragically overlooked albums I know of. Eddie DeGarmo and Dana Key came together in Memphis, first as schoolyard rivals and then as friends. They played in rock bands together as teens, landing a deal with ZZ Top's label London Records when they were too young to even sign the contract for themselves. They cut their chops in clubs and dance halls playing the hits of the day, Dana on guitar and vocals and Eddie on organ, piano and vocals. When they came to faith, they simply incorporated songs about Jesus into their blistering blues-soaked sound. As Eddie details in his recent book, Rebel for God, the Christian music industry was still in its infancy. So I do think it's important to understand that, whereas later generations may have come up with a concept of Christian rock or CCM music as a possible career path or creative choice, even for Eddie and Dana, that thought never had occurred to them until much later. Where the bulk of Christian music, like Christian film today, was much more about delivering a specific message or set of social cues than it was about delivering musical excellence, DeGarmo and Key were different. Their message was important, and they made no bones about it, but their music, a sophisticated blend of progressive rock, R&B, southern rock, and blue-eyed soul, was next-level stuff. It deserved to be heard by rock fans far and wide, and in some cases it was. But a new era was dawning, and DNK was about to become one of the first bands to define a new genre known as Christian rock. Straight On was produced by Eddie, Dana, and the late Joe Hardy, whose work with ZZ Top and The Replacements is now legendary. The album, which was recorded at the famous Ardent Studios in Memphis, is sonically leagues beyond most 70s albums that came from the Christian scene. It opens with the understated but powerful groove of Jericho, one of the few songs from this LP that stayed in the band's set well into the 80s. Next up is one of my favorite songs ever, certainly of this genre and this band, 
Living on the Edge of Dying features a rare lead vocal from DeGarmo and an insane prog rock intro that settles into an almost queen-like overture before becoming a classic rock testimonial barn burner. Bad Livin' blends a wicked cool guitar tone with both early analog synthesizer and acoustic instruments to remarkable and unique effect. Long Distance Runner, another standout track, though there really are no bad songs on this set. But the clavinet intro and light funk groove is such a tasty backdrop for Key's vocal. There's another thing worth mentioning about Straight On, and that is the lyrical approach that DeGarmo and Key took throughout this and their other early material. Knowing that they were often singing to people who did not already share their beliefs, and to fellow believers who needed to be encouraged, challenged, and instructed, the band crafted songs that managed to weave significant theological concepts with relatable tone that could be very in your face or very gentle, sometimes at the same time. Let Him Help You Today sits on one side of that extreme, with a warm, invitational vibe, and then there's I Never Knew You, another burner that opens with a trippy, almost Emerson, Lake, and Palmer-sounding intro before settling into a groove that challenges believers who claim to love Jesus but don't take his words to heart. Not gonna lie, this song comes to mind a lot these days. Of course, Christian music evolved as it became thought of as a unique, if often marginalized, musical genre, and DNK got very good at coming up with anthems for youth and ballads for radio. They understood what the gatekeepers wanted. 
but back when they were still largely on the outside of the church world, Eddie and Dana crafted different kinds of songs. These kinds of songs, this kind of writing, had a lasting impact on me, and honestly, shapes me to this day. DeGarmo and Key's Straight On can be found on streaming services, though there are a couple of frustrating errors in the files, errors that I even pointed out when I worked at Capitol and still haven't been fixed. This is an album well worthy of a vinyl and digital reissue, and Eddie's book, Rebel for God, is worth checking out. And yes, full disclosure, I did help him with it. It still amazes me when I think that all those years ago, my grandma walked into a Christian bookstore and asked for a recommendation for some Christian music for her grandson that was into rock and roll, and some good-hearted worker handed her this. I still have the sleeve of that cassette, which I had the band members sign when I met them a few years later. But that's another story. As I climb up on my soapbox this time, I'm going to borrow some words from the incredible journalist, activist, and Christian radical Dorothy Day that I was somewhat reminded of as I thought about the work of Krista Wells and, and even the record by Sam Phillips. If you're not familiar with Day, I strongly encourage you to become so, maybe starting with her autobiography, The Long Loneliness. She was an amazing person who was born in 1897 and died in 1980. She converted to Catholicism as she pursued justice for the poor. There's a quote that I found from an essay she wrote in The Catholic Worker in 1948, and I resonate with it as a creative person of faith here 70 years later. It seems like something that could have been pulled from a wise person's social media account this very day. She says, and I quote, Whenever I groan within myself and think how hard it is to keep writing about love in these times of tension and strife, which may at any moment become for us all a time of terror, I think to myself, what else is the world interested in? What else do we all want, each one of us, except to love and be loved in our families, in our work, in all our relationships? God is love. Love casts out fear. Even the most ardent revolutionist seeking to change the world to overturn the tables of the money changers is trying to make a world where it is easier for people to love, to stand in that relationship with each other of love. We want with all our hearts to love, to be loved, and not just in the family, but to look upon all as our mothers, sisters, brothers, children. It is when we love the most intensely and most humanly that we can recognize how tepid is our love for others. The keenness and intensity of love brings with it suffering, of course, but joy too, because it is a foretaste of heaven. And with that, I will climb back down from my soapbox. That's going to do it for episode three. As always, I want to send a big thanks to my co-producer, editor, and good friend Bruce Brown for all of his excellent work on this show. I absolutely could not and most certainly would not do this alone. 
A complete list of the songs used on this episode of the podcast can be found at truetunes.com. Just look for the episode three track sheet. Everything in the True Tunes podcast is protected by U.S. copyright law and is the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Make sure to subscribe to our email list at truetunes.com if you haven't done that already. And if you're not already, you should also be listening to the weekly True Tunes Gallery Stage playlists on Spotify. Every week, we pull together around 40 songs from the past and present across a wide variety of genres just for you. And every week, when we update the list, we copy the previous week's songs into a massive archive list. Listen to the main mixtape for a great blend of brand new releases and classics, and the archive list can be your new favorite radio station. That's it for now. Until next time, this is John J. Thompson saying stay tuned and stay true.